0: Uh, so welcome, everybody, to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas. And today we have two guests. We actually had to change the name of the thing on Eventbrite. And they are special guests, but I couldn't say special because the character count wouldn't allow it if I wanted to fit your full, wonderful names in. So our special guests today are Andy Welfley and Michael Metz. I will let you introduce yourselves uh, because you have such very interesting things to say about yourselves. But Michael, we'll start with you.
1: Right, sounds good. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Um, I am co-author, writing is designing, of course, and also a UX manager at Allstate. I live just outside Chicago with um, a my wife, a couple of kids, and a very small dog. Cool and Andy?
2: Hey, David. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Um, I, I mean, we're not that special, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe if Michael didn't have that J that he wanted to put into his name, you know, you could have fit, fit all that in there. So What is do yes, Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no,
2: it's all right. Um, I am uh, a uh, content strategy manager of a small UX content strategy team at, at Adobe in San Francisco. And uh, I co-authored the book, Writing is Designing with Michael. And I'm, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Awesome. And something I forgot at the jump and I meant to chat with you guys about beforehand, but um feel free to do this, you know, or not do this, but um, I've been trying to start with land um, acknowledgements at the top of these. So I'm just going to say for myself, I'm coming in from Media, Pennsylvania, which is unceded land from the Lenape, uh, And I also feel obligated to add, because recently folks have been talking about, uh, with actual, you know, um, descendants of the Lenape tribe, and there's a lot of like, thanks for the land acknowledgement, but just understand, we don't really believe in ownership. <laughs> so don't focus on the land part so much as the, you know, we were here first part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so just, yeah. just putting that out there. Um, and I have put in chat, You're... if anyone else wants to throw into chat their acknowledgements, there's a great little link there. They'll let you know who was originally where you are now. Uh, so just if yeah. you
2: want. Out here in the Bay Area, it's the um, the uh, unceded territories of the Ohlone people. I've never mm-hmm. seen this, uh, this app. This is awesome.
0: Yeah, it's really cool, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... Just to get us started, and um, Andy, I'll throw to you for this one, Um,
2: what have you been thinking about lately? Oh, boy, (laughs) that is quite a question. (laughs) Um, What have I been thinking about lately? I mean, I definitely have not really only been thinking about uh, election news for the last seven days. (laughs) Pay attention to that. Uh, That's definitely... Uh, not the only thing I've been thinking about. I mean, yeah, I've been thinking about that. Um, Today, actually, I've been thinking a lot about, so yesterday, uh, I posted um, Adobe's hiring an intern. Uh, My team is hiring an intern for the summer, and I've been thinking a lot about that because I've been getting a lot of questions about it that I didn't anticipate and assumed uh, otherwise, such as um, everybody was like, now, is this a paid internship? And in my head, I'm just like, well, of course it's a paid internship. We're a giant tech company; we would never offer an unpaid internship. I didn't think that that was something I needed to uh, explicitly call out, but actually, indeed, it is.
0: Oh yeah, and you'd be surprised. Even and, and and ironically, the larger the corporation, sometimes the less likely.
2: <laughs> I I mean I, I just wanted to I mean go in the record here and and realize that I would uh, I would never agree to. Uh, Allow our team to host an unpaid internship. That's a lot of like, just like exercise of privilege and just very predatory capitalism that is not needed in the world. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, specifically today, that's what I've been thinking about.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too because I like and didn't yeah. wasn't there a state? Oh, I think it was Florida. Oh my God, Florida! Like approved as part of the election, approved increasing the minimum wage. I don't know yeah. about how much, but that was like Florida, really. All right, you you continue, bucks. you continue to boggle me, Florida. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's. So I read an article a while ago. Mm-hmm. I was, I think it was in like the Atlantic or something. But in any case, it was just sort of around this notion of millennials as this constantly put upon, like feeling guilty if you're not working, kind of mood, and how that mood is awesome for capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> because then basically I can convince you to work for nothing because you're already gonna want to work.
2: <laughs> like gig yeah.
0: economy loves people who feel guilty when they're not working.
2: Yep. Ish. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So that's been that's been the sort of like forefront of my mind today, besides sort of like the you know the attempted coup that's happening on the, <laughs> the GOP right now. So just yeah. small things. Yeah, little things. And and for those of stuff, you listening yeah. to
0: this in the near future, this is being recorded three, four days after it was announced that uh, Biden won the the whole thing. Yeah. There. Yeah. Um, so so it's an interesting it's an interesting time for you to look back on. Um, sure is. Michael, what have what have you been thinking about lately? Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was thinking of some of the same things we've Mm -hmm. just talked about. Um, But I've also been thinking about the craft of management a bit. Mm. Um, I'm a manager at my job right now. And um, I've just been thinking about what does it mean to get better? At management, what does it mean to share resources with other managers and to learn and to create spaces for that? Um, I've been doing a lot of reading on the subject. So one thing I just finished is Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It's been recommended to me by a lot of people. Um, This is Next uh, Resilient Management by Larry Hogan. Ah, Yay! And I also just finished this one: Why You Need a Content Team and How to Build One by Rachel McConnell. Um, So that's kind of my thing. Like when I start thinking about something, I just want to read a lot about it. Um, Yeah. And uh, that's been a neat journey so far. So
0: what kind of things are you
1: learning? Well, I mean, a lot of this stuff is like, <laughs> it's funny reading, reading these now, I'm realizing like how much uh, modern offices and office dynamics show up and how people talk about management. So I've been thinking about how to apply this stuff in the context of a completely remote um, culture in a world that is like just filled with trauma. Um, how do you practice some of this stuff in a way that's empathetic? How do you practice this stuff in a way that accommodates who people are, um, as a whole person? Um, so yeah, that, that, that's been some of what I've been thinking, like a lot of what radical candor gets at is like how to have hard conversations. So I've been thinking about how to do that. Like when, when you mainly see someone over a video call, that's not a, that's not a straightforward process and it's harder to build that rapport. So, um. Good, helpful things I'm learning, but I'd also love to hear from any of you if you have ways that you, you've been doing that in your own work that's like that's working, You know how to connect with people.
0: Yeah, and somebody in this chat asked, what was the second book? Was that Resilient Management? Resilient Management was the second one, yeah, yeah. by Lara Hogan. Um, if anyone knows it, knows oh. the link, wants to drop yeah. it in the chat, that'd be great. Um, yeah, so that's, that's definitely um, a tricky thing to work on. So one of the things I wanted to um, get into was um, your book, your new book, is you know, focused on UX writing, among other things. I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of bias that can show up in uh, in UX writing. And what are some of the the main things that kind of come to mind when you think about bias in UX writing? And either of you can feel free to
2: jump in. Well, I, I honestly don't know anything about bias, biases. I wish that somebody would write a book about it.
0: I know. It's just, you know, there's so many. <laughs> and I'm sure that book would be excessively long if, if one did. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good book. You
1: should buy David's book if you haven't bought it yet. Yeah. Love that book. I think he's um, going to go get it
0: and embarrass me.
2: Yes. There it
0: is. <laughs> so good. Got it right so there on my show. For, for those of you on the podcast, that would be designed for cognitive bias. Um, yeah get it at your local a book apart website now yeah use it for stocking stuffers start a
2: book club Uh, yeah Um, yeah
1: i believe david can do book orders for you if you want to yeah if you want to Um, read the book to you over the phone (laughs) we can work out a deal (laughs) nice yeah i love that book i mean some of the biases i think about are in um like who we're writing for of course that's one of the things i think about a lot. This is kind of a team-wide issue, but um, it's something that eventually the UX writer, whoever's writing on the team, really has to grapple with um, and think through what parts of a person's life do I want to accommodate right now. Um, One of the things I think about a lot is like how we trend towards positive. Um, So I think of what I learned from your book combined with what I learned from um, Sarah Walker better and Eric Meyer's book, Design for Real Life. Um, to really explore stress cases as a writer, because, um, there's a lot of cheerfulness and like design for delight, I guess, <laughs> but, but I think some of these systems we're designing for have dramatic real life impact. So one example I think of a lot is like, um, we were working on a chat bot for an insurance company and, um, someone said like, why don't we tell people, hope you have a great day at the end of the conversation. Um, well, I mean, in that situation, someone could be chatting with us because their house burnt down or because they've been in a car accident or, you know, some other really painful moment in their lives. So telling them to have a great day will come off as uh, frustrating and, and unaccommodating, and, and it will be like counterintuitive and, and, and counteract all, everything we're trying to achieve. So um, that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot for UX writing, and I think UX writers can- um, have a
2: focused conversation about that. Yeah, and I feel like I mean, I, oh,
0: go ahead.
2: I was gonna say I think that's that's huge. Um, like, if you're a lot of people, like, think about stress cases as edge cases, and they just like you know drop off, and they're not thinking about it anymore. But like honestly, that's that's survivorship bias, right? Like, you should be spending more time, uh, more time talking about or thinking about stress cases and making sure that you know it. You're designing the right experience for for people who might actively be harmed or stressed by by an experience.
0: Yeah, and I feel like one of the, you, you sort of get, get to kill two birds with that too, because I think in the act of writing error messages or, or writing for uh, non-optimal, unhappy path outcomes, again, which are, there are many more of those than there are happy path outcomes, just by definition. <laughs> um, yeah. It forces you to think deeply about, well, what could go wrong, right? Um, I remember an exercise I did with a um, a company that did like um, like hiring software and headhunting software. And it was sort of one of those, we walked, I was doing, vo- it, was, it was voice and tone work. It wasn't like speculative design work or ethics work or anything or inclusive. It was just voice and tone work. But I wanted to have the right voice and tone for what could go wrong. And I needed to know, how is someone going to feel if this goes wrong? How is someone going to feel if that goes wrong? And just the act of answering the question, well, what could go wrong? You were kind of getting both the voice and tone you were going to need but then also hey here are all the things that could go wrong right that maybe we (laughs) didn't prepare for
2: two for one yeah
1: Yeah, i mean people are eager to start with that voice and tone stuff but the that other stuff is far more important and structural and foundational i mean error messages are a great example we write error messages all the time and if you are looking at those thinking well, they don't know how to use the software, that's a bias that is really harmful versus our software is getting in the way of what they're trying to do. That's a completely different way of looking at it, but I think is a far better way to look at it.
0: Yeah, and that's, I think that's tricky too, because you know, as I've been learning about um, self-serving bias and how people, people treat their, their technology like a person, and the more personal information they share with that technology, the more they'll blame themselves if, if there if there is a problem. And so, even trying to get your head around if something goes wrong, what are people? How are people going to feel? Like, are they going to feel like ashamed that they feel stupid that they don't know how to use it? Are they going to feel angry at the computer, at themselves? It's like where is that you know emotional journey going to take them? Um, even just in the context of um, their relationship to the computer. Yeah. Um, you included in the book an entire chapter about inclusivity and accessibility. Why was that important, and, and what were some of the main points you wanted to hit in that chapter?
2: Well, David, I don't know if you have noticed, um, but Michael and Metz and I are both uh, two, uh, two white dudes in tech. Um, yeah let me for the for the and... listeners describe the
0: the whiteness the glassesness the <laughs> short very wholesome look
2: of both of these gentlemen the the <laughs> light reflecting off of my <laughs> my white forehead right now <laughs> um, i i think it was i mean it was important to like you know even even though we are you know, the co-authors of this book, I think we both acknowledged just right away that it was super, super important to uh, make sure that we're bringing in uh, voices that weren't ours, um, really through, through everything, not just this chapter. Um, but I, I also, I think that like before this, I know I had kind of like a misunderstanding of what the difference was between like accessibility and inclusive design. I knew that mm-hmm. they were related. I wasn't quite sure how they related, I knew that one had to do with like structuring code and and designs, and one had to do with just like with, with users. Um, so so honestly, a lot of that chapter was just sort of our journey in trying to understand the difference the differences, and you know asking asking experts about that. So um, it's uh, I'll, I'll explain it if like <laughs> if that would be useful. Um, my uh, we interviewed Matt May, who's the head of inclusive design at Adobe, where I work, He's one of my coworkers, and. He, he mentioned that like you know if, if the goal if the goal is to have an inclusive design, uh, accessibility is sort of one of the means of achieving that like if you if you were like sending your ship out to sea pointed toward the inclusive design uh, harbor uh, includes like in- like accessibility is the, the navigation that you use to like get your get your boat there um, which I thought was really interesting and made a lot of sense so um, all. All accessible design should be inclusive uh, but not all inclusive design is accessibility if that makes sense Mm. yeah 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 um it's also i mm -hmm. sorry go ahead andy no please please go ahead i was just gonna say i also
1: feel like it's not like um we don't intend to cast ourselves as as experts on accessibility and inclusion but it it would be irresponsible to write a book about UX writing without addressing those topics and without treating them as, as core to how you should approach the work. So like Andy was saying, like learning from other people was really important for that. Um, and just also, it, it's something that it, we have enough stories, we have enough data, we have enough uh, to know how important this topic is um, in our industry right now. So it needs to be part of the conversation whenever we're talking about design.
0: So, So to that, I'm kind of interested like how do you view or what have you been learning or what has your journey been around even that notion of allyship, right? Because in the global fight against oppression in the global fight against, you know, the patriarchy, all of these things, there is a spectrum of you are the target of these things versus you are not the target, but you want it to end. (laughs) How, what have you been learning about what it means to be a good ally or how has that journey been for you as you both within the book and just sort of, you know, in, in your roles in general? So, to me, That's an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> Please do it in 25 words or less. Go. <laughs> yes.
1: For me, um, this has been something that I feel is, um, first of all, just has to start personally. And I yeah. think the pers- one of the people who guided me towards that perspective is Vivian Castillo, who um, is a great voice in the space as a UX researcher. Um, launched a a, a course recently that I actually went to called Humanity Centered. Um, Andy went to it as well. Um, It's a really good, um, like, personal development course um, to just learn about, like, how will this actually show up in your workplace as a UX professional? Um, But I think, like, just also treating it as something that is your responsibility to learn about and um, try to affect has been really helpful for me. So, like, I mean, I consider... The best design book I've read this year to be um, So You Want to Talk About Race by Iji e. Oluo, oh. even though people don't think of that as a design book, but it's affected the conversations I have at work and it's affected how I design in a really impactful way. Um, so I'd also say that like how that's showing up, like at work, I'm viewing it as like, okay, I have to recognize the privilege that I have. I have to recognize that there are there are ways that are appropriate for me to be applying pressure and making people uncomfortable um so that's what i've been trying to do at work um, and trying to just push for us to approach the work differently and think about it differently so like one of the things that i um that i pushed for our leaders to do was to to give us training on, on how to be anti-racist as designers um we actually hired the um the creative Relax- reaction lab have you heard of them oh, no. Carroll? Um, they do a great workshop called um, How Traditional Design Thinking Protects White Supremacy.
0: Okay, I've and... heard of that.
1: Yeah, how, right. Have you done that yet? So, yeah, so we did that as a team, and it was, it was really helpful and has given our team like, a lot of language to talk about how this is showing up in products, because that's the thing about it. It's like it's so insidious, right? Uh, people don't realize they're in it. Um, I, I can't remember who said it, but it's like white supremacy is not the fish, it's the water, Right, um, you know, so like that's uh, that's something that I think about a lot. Is like, how can we constantly make ourselves aware that we're in the water and change direction so that we can
2: so we can get out of it. That's interesting. I didn't actually know that. Michael, uh, Antonette, Carol's been doing doing workshops at Adobe as well. Oh, great! She has been oh, keeping awesome. busy. Yeah, um, I don't have. Much to add to that. I mean, that's 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 really well said. Um, I think, um, you know, in, in my in my work and kind of like throughout Adobe, I think that's been uh, manifesting in in a lot of different ways. Uh, my team is um, one of the the big things that we've been working for working on in sort of like a um, in our products and in our uh, centralized guidelines is talking about um, how to. Uh, how to write about people and how to like use equitable terminology and language throughout our products um, it's it's one of those things where it's I, I think a lot of software companies have been talking about this uh, lately and it's it's not it's not the like doing putting that together is not the anti-racist work itself but it's tools that one can use in their anti-racism journey right like that's like that's that's kind of what we're what we're focusing on, we're we're trying to give people ourselves and others at the company tools um, and thought like thought technologies, if you will. Um, mm. Yeah, we we're we're trying to we're trying to make sure that it isn't just like a list of words that you are not allowed or allowed to say, but instead actually give sort of um, context and awareness behind those wor- those words, and to like you know win some win some hearts and minds. Um, just to like understand the impact of those words as they show up. Um, so obviously, like master-slave terminology is a big one as it shows up when you refer to technology and blacklists and whitelists. Um, those are kind of like the big examples that everybody's been been talking about in, in these circles lately.
0: That's actually one I've been thinking a lot about because master's degree. <laughs> I've been wondering, yeah. it's like, are we going to come for that? Because on the one hand, I'm like, I, I grew up with that terminology. It doesn't seem weird to me until <laughs> you start to reflect. And I'm like, well, if it doesn't really make sense in code, does it really make sense in academia? And is that what we want to be the highest, like, or one of the highest things you can achieve?
2: Yeah. Or, or, well, think, or think even, about, yeah. Think about something like, you know, Adobe products are is are all about sort of like, like mastering a craft right like you're you're mastering graphic design or or whatever um and that just is like so prevalent in all of our like marketing language and and i honestly i i have been personally recommending people avoid it but we have not sort of like taken a stance against that particular usage of it because it's so i mean it's still based on that same etymological root of like of like asserting one's dominance over a person's yeah. place right like it's still it's still there um but like it, it has taken such a different path and and then something that's as obvious as like master slave or something yeah. that has like roots specifically in oppression like you know whitelist and blacklist and redlining and things like that um but so yeah that, that that's kind of the the place where i personally am at right now is trying to kind of like figure out um yeah like words that have like to take it on so much other kinds of meaning, like, like master mastery.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, um, and someone, the, the chat's kind of like asking what would be a better word? I think what's been interesting yeah. about this journey for me as a content strategist is the challenge around plain language to sort of say, okay, this isn't really that different than getting rid of jargon because the goal of getting rid of jargon is to say, okay, yeah, but what do you mean? So with yeah. darkness, right, dark patterns, and there's problematics around. Hey, some of my friends are dark. Do we have to use the term dark patterns, right? So yeah. you start to think, well, what is it? What what am I trying to tell you about that pattern? Well, one thing is I'm trying to tell you that that pattern is deceptive. Oh, deceptive patterns, right? Yep. Yep. Maybe that doesn't cover all exactly. of it, but if that pattern is dark for some other reason, okay, let's talk about the reason. And I'm wondering if there's a similar like trick. With mastery, because you're right, it's a domination narrative, but there are other narratives. We're just not as used to thinking about them. So, for example, there's cultivation narratives and gardening narratives and natural narratives, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, but that's just – basically, I'm trying to solve it right here and now.
2: <laughs> yeah. it's It's been an extra – An extra fun challenge because like Adobe software has like color is something that you can adjust and change in software. So you have, you have terms that involve like white space and like Mm. a black screen and people are like, well, white, white or black, should we be using these? Like they're physically describing the color that is appearing on the screen. You're not using white to mean like the good stuff and and dark to mean the bad stuff. And we've, we've been sort of determinologizing stuff like blacklist and whitelist, like, like what is this blacklist for? Well, this is for, you know, like blocking certain IP addresses from accessing this. It's like, well, don't call it a blacklist, call it blocked IP addresses, right? Like we can (laughs) de-terminologize this and sometimes even like, you know, get more meaning back. Yeah.
1: But, but I really like where you're going with that, Dave, because, like, maybe the concept is worth questioning rather than the term itself. Um, if you'll forgive me for getting a little nerdy for a second. Oh, like, please. There's the, so the, <laughs> in Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy, if you've ever read it, there's basically the premise is there's um, this alien race that comes to the Earth after we've almost destroyed ourselves in nuclear war. Uh, So almost everyone is dead and they save the human race, but they have concerns about continuing to let the human race survive because of what they call the contradiction, which is that humans are very intelligent, but they also want to put hierarchy on everything. Mm. And so that ends up with them always fighting and wanting to destroy each other. So maybe the idea of having this concept of master, which is like, whether it's higher skilled or whether it's power over other people, like maybe that concept is worth questioning um, because I, I'm not sure like, that, it, that it shows up in healthy ways, in a lot of ways. Um, it doesn't always show up in, in terrible ways, but it's also done a lot of harm. So like, maybe, maybe we need to change our concepts, too, as we think about this, and not just find new words, but, but find new concepts.
0: Well, and I think that's, that's kind of core to this work, right? Because uh, to what Andy was saying before, I agree. If you just make a list of bad words, you run afoul of reactants, which is a bias where people don't like to be told what to do. I think that's why political correctness fell on its face. It just basically ended up fetishizing all the naughty words. And so when a guy like Trump comes along and starts saying those words, it's like, thank God I can finally say these words now. Right. (laughs) Um, And uh, that was not the intended result. (laughs) So (laughs) I feel like there has to be, there has to be a common goal. And that common goal lives beneath, like you say, the impact of these words and not just this is bad and you're gonna get a slap if you say this word and this is good and you're gonna get woke points if you use this that word, which is itself a hierarchical binary you know way of going about it. Yeah yeah. I mean so like all these efforts to make
1: language and products um, uh, improve it in this way, I think those efforts also have to come alongside efforts to help people change themselves personally and grow themselves personally because uh, just changing the labels, won't necessarily do less harm if they're still thinking the same way.
0: Yeah. And I feel like some of the models, like this was, this was why I was so frustrated to see tech grow up the way it did, because there were certain principles that early tech was embracing that I thought, Oh, this is going to be great. So one of them is crowdsourcing and this notion that you could have emergent knowledge and that you could sort of things could bubble up from the bottom and and also uh, peer-to-peer uh, commons-based production, right? That we could that we, could, we could build better things together cooperatively rather than adopting a hierarchical structure. So you could see things like heteror- he- heterarchies and holacracy and like all of these like dismantle the hierarchical structure emerging out of pretty common tech, very nerdy developer practices. Unfortunately... We aimed that at capitalism. <laughs> and Basil said, yeah, heterarchy is great. How can I make money off it? Yeah, holocracy is great. How do I make money off it? Right. Which forced it back into, I think, this very up and down hierarchical thing. But the ability to think in metaphors that aren't domination-based, I think is actually secretly an ability a lot of us already have.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm familiar with holocracies, but like I, I know like meat for a long time, Medium was one. Like the company of medium.com was a holacracy before they realized it it wasn't working. And wasn't like zappos.com one too? Mm
0: -hmm, I think so. I want to say GitHub to a certain extent as well. Yeah. Git, I guess. Yeah. 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 And for those of you I'm like tossing out the jargon, your holacracy, and and correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically just saying like, we don't need leaders. (laughs) We can all just sort of emergently arrange ourselves around different problems that arise, and we'll just get shit done something like that, better, or worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And it kind of rests on the concept of a leader that is like top down and like enforcing, like, I think that's why people invented It's because they're like, Oh, we don't want this top down leadership, but that is just kind of a, um, a really one
0: dimensional view of leadership. Right. And Mm -hmm. what it has to be or how it shows up. Um, so there's a question that came up, unfortunately, a while ago, I'm finding that someone was saying, uh, can you give examples uh, of that? What's an example of that? Um, and Lizzie, if you can remember what we were talking about when you asked, we'd be happy to attempt to come up with an example of that.
2: I think I remember what what was okay. talking about. Sure, Please. sure. Correct. Correct me if this is not not it, Lizzie. I think I think I was talking about. Yep, you got it. Uh, about inclusive versus accessible ah, design. Okay. Yeah. So an example of accessible design would be to you know structure, um, provide provide alt, alt text for images, or to structure your um, your code in in a hierarchical way that like a screen reader can easily parse. Right. Like some, like providing that context. Uh, whereas inclusive design would be uh, designing. Um, like making sure that, like, if you're providing, if if the interface is asking for your gender, making sure that it's not just male or female, right? Making sure that there are uh, other options, or prefer not to say, or um, you know, like like free text, enter your own pronouns, uh, and <laughs> give context or transparency around why you're asking for that information in the first place. So that that would be that would be something that is more akin, that would be inclusive but not accessible. Um, whereas something like you know properly structuring your 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 design for screen readers would be something that is both accessible and inclusive does that make sense?
0: I think she is saying yes or maybe that's a yes too that was Great. what I wanted to know about <laughs>
2: um, <Great>.
0: excellent so <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna move to two more uh, so could you create hol- holocratic structural design hmm
2: um, I am a little bit out of my depth here, Okay. Um, but I do think that depending, depending on the makeup of say a design system team, um, often it is, uh, kind of like, you know, it, it's kind of like a curated, uh, it's. Like a curated garden of components and designs, rather than something where there's people sitting in an ivory tower saying, "This is how form fields should look." Uh, you may use you may use my my Lego bricks to build your thing. <laughs> um, I, I yeah I I I feel like that's that's often like a discussion that happens on on design system teams um, anyway. Um, Adobe's, for example, is is very much kind of like curated from tried and true patterns, research patterns that like work, and can be modified or applied kind of more broadly. Um, so yeah, I don't know if this is a good time to, to to get into design systems, but to me that feels like a a kind of like non. It's like applying authority without sort of like a hierarchical um, structure, maybe.
0: Yeah, and. <laughs> Like what it puts me in mind of, and I don't know if this is exactly the same thing, but what it puts me in mind of is communities of practice, right? Where there isn't necessarily a leader of that community, but there are people kind of working on the same problems in their own ways. And if something works well, everyone kind of adopts it. Like I think about hip hop. I've been watching Hip Hop Evolution, which is amazing. It's on Netflix. You should totally watch it. But what emerges is this picture of people all over the country taking this idea and innovating on it in different ways. And the ways they innovated on it are very much regional and informed by the politics and the economies and the culture of that region. But then someone will take something that's happening in Florida and borrow it for Atlanta. And someone will take what's happening in Atlanta and borrow it for New York and just a constant like exchange of ideas. And it's weird too, because hip hop culture is very domination based, right? It's very much about being the best MC and mastering your craft, right? But somehow in all of that, there is this kind of holacracy around just sharing and whatever works, that that wins.
2: Yeah. Well, that's fascinating.
0: Um, so I do actually want to get into design systems. You were, you were um, We were talking before about spectrum, and I want to give you a chance to kind of tout that. what is it, and what how does it fit into how does inclusive UX writing like fit into that? How have you made that a part of of what that is?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 interesting thank you for, thank you for letting me talk about it um, uh, so Adobe so I work at Adobe and uh, the Adobe design team is a really huge uh, organization of product designers and researchers and content strategists um, there's about 300 400 ish of us um, just kind of like across the company and um, kind of at the center of that we have a team dedicated to spectrum which is our design system so if anybody here is familiar with like uh, the Apple Human Interface Guidelines that like has components of a design system, Shopify's Polaris is a really kind of like well-known one that shares out a lot. Um, and one of the um, one of the interesting things about the way that Adobe's design team has sort of like grew and matured is that I, the content strategy practice at Adobe is just about, I should say like the UX content strategy. So content design, UX writing, this practice is about as old as our design system is. Uh, so I was able to kind of get involved in the first um, The first bit of forming our design system right like what are some like what are the taxonomy that we're going to use to document things, Um, what do we, what do we call components or pieces or Lego bricks or whatever. Um, And we've grown to a point where uh, spectrum has their own kind of embedded full time uh, content strategist, which is. Uh, Great, because oftentimes they sort of take the form of just like this this visual design documentation and components, so um, one of the things that was really important for us and a a way for us to sort of like make an impact at a big scale was to um, uh, document a lot of content strategy ish things into our design system for broader distribution, right? So we have voice and tone guidelines there. We have like a word list. Um, we're not calling it sort of like terminology, capital T terminology yet, quite yet, but it's a glossary of like, you know, preferred, um, you know, photo album instead of camera roll or something like that, like preferred language uh, to use. We have we have content standards and grammar mechanics um, and something that we just recently launched like last, last month, uh, what is this month uh, end of September we launched it Who's to say? <laughs> yeah what year is this um, it's March still I think <laughs> yeah I think so <laughs> it's March three hundred and fifth it is uh, we launched the uh, inclusive UX writing guidelines so if anybody wants to see it if you go to spectrum spectrum adobe com uh, and click on content uh, you can see our inclusive UX writing guidelines and we are um, Kind of launching it in phases. Uh, we have a phase um, where we're talking about like writing with writing for visuals, right? Like how to how to structure alt text and how to like you know talk sort of chronologically instead of spatially in your in your language. Uh, that makes it a lot more accessible. Mm. Uh, we have a section that we have a section around like you know um, writing for accessibility where we go through a lot like more of that in detail. Um, thank you, Michael, for putting that in the in the chat. Um, and we're we're working on a section um, about basically like writing about people, right? Like, like, hey, if you if 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 you fellow Adobe writers are writing about people, like, you make sure that you know we're we're being relevant and we're being sensitive. Um, don't use language like, hey, Ado- Adobe Photoshop is a tool for designers to uh, to to do this. Instead say Adobe is a like like people who don't identify as designers often use Photoshop. We don't want to be exclusive like exclusionary when it comes like when we talk about it. Uh so Adobe is a an app that allows you to design and edit photos. You know, that's just, just simple little tweaks here and there. Um I think I think David, you know Sarah Smart. She's a content strategist on my team. Um she's mm. she's on the on the confab circuit. Mm. Um she uh, developed a, a talk that we gave internally um, to a lot of other writers at Adobe who don't necessarily fall within the Adobe Design, uh, and it just kind of like you know blew some minds. And we suddenly became the the team that people went to when like they were you know writing about something that was touchy, like they weren't quite sure how to approach it. Yeah. So uh, what better way to kind of get it out in front of people, the people we need to, than to you know put it to a put it into the design system documentation.
0: Yeah, and if there's if there's anyone listening to this who is like, I would love to do that at my company. What what are some good first steps to tackle? Because that sounds, you know, big.
2: Yeah, it's it is it is big, and and there is a lot of kind of coming out of the gate at Adobe. I think that there was a lot of um, things that were set up for success there. Like we. Our content strategy team is organized centrally within the centralized design team. So, our, our director of design over my team is also over the content, the design system team, and over um, kind of like our brand and icons design team. So, we kind of like come out of the gate with a director who has lots and lots of relationships and uh, influence with uh, like kind of specific siloed product design teams, and that really helps. Um, but honestly, I think, I think honestly, just, just documenting things, uh, like in a wiki or on an mm. internal website will, will take you far, right? Like it'll help you kind of like scale your work and impact. Um, it is, it is just sort of an interesting phenomenon that if something is, is, uh, written down, people will pay more attention to it. Um, that is something that like, you know, we've been learning about just sort of like you know, tools that, tools, tools of white supremacy, right? There's, there's sort of a worship of the written word that people have and that mm-hmm. plays into it, right? Like, Hey, it's written down here. <laughs> Got to do what it says. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think, I think documenting and, and scaling your work is really important and just like teaching, socializing, not just sort of like making sure the work that you do is not just for like the specific thing that you're working on, but is something you can kind of broadcast a, a lot wider as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've never been cool enough to work on a cool design system like Andy's. Um, but I, I'm like a big fan of the spectrum stuff. But I, I do think like if you're thinking, oh, man, I don't know how I can make that happen at my company. What Andy's saying about like just getting something out there as a shared understanding is really helpful. Like we have um, like just confluence pages on my team right now. Uh, but that's where we we document a lot of this stuff. And uh, the advocacy, I think, is the most important thing. Like, Documenting it is great as a first step, but if you don't um, think of it as a product and think of it as like mm-hmm. I need to make this useful to people, um, then that's that's kind of the key step. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like a lot of the a lot of the ways um, <clears throat> people will set up their design systems with like a product manager, for example, who's responsible for it. That's a really smart move. Um, but if you don't have one, you can still think of it as a product and still take like okay, if someone isn't finding this useful, how can we change it so that it is.
0: Yeah, I love that. Taking the lessons we've learned from good product design and, and applying them here. Um, I'm going to encourage folks to uh, continue to put questions in with um, text or video up at the up at the top. Uh, and in the meantime, I want to get back to language, right? So, one of the things that I learned studying bias is that the names we give things impact how we think about them. Um, and I want I want to kind of get your takes on this, in particular what happens when we say content designer versus when we say content strategist and and, and michael i'm gonna let you un, run with this one for starters yeah you go ahead michael <laughs> <laughs> just a
1: softball question um <laughs> it's so funny that this is such a big issue in our industry right like we're just obsessing over what we call each other and like the people we work with don't care like they could care less um they're just looking for a basic understanding um So I think that's one thing, like it can, in a sense, we can almost place too much value on them and lose sight of like what the utility is. So to me, I think like, like I'm big on just adopting whatever title I think will make me effective for a given role or project or company or whatever, like just treat it as a thing that has utility. Um, If I remember early in my career, feeling a little alienated because I was doing UX writing um, like nine years ago, when the, the only companies that were like hiring for that particular role were like Apple and Google. And I was doing it in the Midwest. And I w- the content strategy community was like, Oh, well, I'm not that like you you can't be a content strategist, because you write things. And, and as a content strategist, I'm strategic, and I think in bigger ways. And um, that wasn't everyone. It was just some people and it really stuck with me and i just began to think of like i don't want anyone to ever feel minimized regardless of their role right like i think content strategy has a lot of value i think content designer has a lot of value in its framing i think ux writer has a lot of value i think the important thing is to find a good fit for your org for your teams for how you need to portray the value of it to other people and go from there and just, just pay everyone the same, right? Like a lot of this comes from um, inequity with with salaries. People are worried that if they are called a writer, they're not gonna get paid the same as a, as a designer, even though they do 98% of the same things, they just don't know how to um, use sketch as well, right? Um, so that, that's, that's the other issue is like, there's all this stuff um, around salaries caught up in it too. And that's a big distraction. Um, so I think, like, if, first off, if design teams were set up to have equitable salaries, this might
2: not be as big of an issue at the end of the day. Hey, Dave, how many how many UX writers does it take to change a light uh, bulb? I don't know, Andy. How many does it take? I would not know. I'm a content strategist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll be here all week. Um, I think that's an excellent point. Um, About the light bulb, certainly, but also about the salaries. So uh, Jonathan Coleman was giving a talk and he was was talking about some of his work and that that was a key step actually in sort of working out um, his team's approach uh, to whatever you want to call it was, making sure everybody was getting the same salary. And if you think about it, so A, (laughs) even with the same title, we live in a world where people rarely make the same salaries because we don't have salary transparency, we do the whole like, okay, what did you negotiate, right? And then what are you gonna negotiate for your raise and this, that, the other, and it's always gonna be this moving target. Um, and we know we know that a lack of salary transparency contributes to uh, inequity in gender pay, right? Yeah. Combine that with um, having to um, do salary negotiations when you uh, are hired and not having a, this is what we're gonna pay you flat rate, <laughs> right? Is another big yeah. way we, we we get there. So I think there's a lot of power in thinking about how are we pay, why why are we paying the people on our team what we pay them, right? And is it because of some perceived skill? Is it because of a name, um, or is it because it's just easier? You know, a lot of the pushback yeah. I've seen sometimes when I ask people, "What if you did uh, uh, salary transparency?" Like, we're not set up for that budget wise. I'm like. What does that even mean?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I really want to highlight the really good work that uh, Jess Sand is doing over mm. the uh, UX and content, the, the content UX community. Um, and in case you didn't know, uh, listeners, there's a really great Slack community that, uh, are, that Michael Metz uh, founded uh, and has grown to, I think like over 9,000 people who are uh, content UX professionals. Uh, it's huge, huge now. Uh, And uh, Jess Sand, who is uh, the admin now, um, she uh, makes the requirement that anytime somebody posts a job posting, which like this is the largest community of like content UX professionals out there, uh, you have to disclose salary ranges. And I that's a really strong principled stand, which is great. Uh, And in fact, kind of excludes me from being able to post there because Adobe's HR policy, like recruiting policies that. Don't let me disclose those salaries up front, which I'm working to try to fight against. But at the same time, like this is such good ammo to go back to them and say, like, "Hey, the largest community of these people of this 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 candidate pool in the world requires this to post there. Um, I can't get get good candidates if I can't post this. Um, so yeah, I, if if anybody here attended Button. Um, Button, the uh, product content conference that was a couple weeks ago. Uh, Christina Halverson had a really, really great conversation with Jess about um, uh, labor and uh, equity and UX. Uh, just a really good conversation. Yeah, shout out to Button. Yeah, Button's podcast awesome. listeners.
1: Andy's wearing the shirt, just so you know. Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> <is> <laughs> yeah.
2: That's, that's true. Uh, completely. Um, yeah. I, Didn't even think about it when I put it on this morning. Oh, no, I thought that was deliberate. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) Can I just add one thing to this conversation? I just really want to, if you're out there thinking through this and thinking through how to approach it for your company, um, I just really want you to know, like, your work is valuable. You're valuable. Don't let the systems we're working in uh, change that. Right. Um, don't don't let it, um, you know, try to, Don't let it devalue you even when it literally is by paying you less. Um, like, I think we're all here to support each other and um, to to grow this practice. It's it's important work. Um, so I, I I hope we're all making progress and I hope we don't lose sight of that fact, like that you are making really important contributions, even when it's not recognized at the way it should be, to be
2: honest. Yeah, and, and Michael any... is the Mister Rogers of UX. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that would be fantastic! I kind of want you to start a podcast mm-hmm. now. That's just you, like uh, you know, welcoming you know UX people, and then having all these different you know uh, puppets that sort of like tell these great, meaningful stories about equity in UX. Um, this thing writes itself. So. I think that's really, so in a sec, I want to like dig a little deeper because I did not realize you actually founded that. (laughs) So we got to talk, but I want to, I want to point out like the value of, um, the value of, of creating your own garden, you know, when the one that's there sucks, right. And there's always this in any Marxist dialectic and any like struggle, there's always these two faces, right. So there's one face that's like here's the established order and it's a big deal when a black man becomes president, when a black woman wins the first uh, acting oscar, when like these are the things that exist that have been dominated by white people for a long time and when people of color and women make inroads into these things that is important and to be celebrated but at the same time those by by definition those institutions already have all this, you know, this shining, this legacy of inequity versus, no, I'm gonna build my own thing. I don't need your Oscar. I don't need your, you know, whatever. I'm gonna build my own thing. And I think the power, and it hadn't occurred to me until Andy just said this, the power, part of the power of building your own thing is if that thing gets enough attention, it becomes the institution, right? It becomes the thing that the other institution can't ignore anymore. And yeah, you have that great argument of look, guess where all the great UX writers are? They're here. If you want to be here, you've got to play by their rules. And I think that's a great, subversive, wonderful way to topple the patriarchy. Uh, so let's do more of it.
2: <laughs> Jess, Jess knows what she's doing. I don't know if you've considered her as a guest on this podcast. Oh, I, I absolutely mm-hmm. have.
0: Um, she, she's she, a very smart person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will, I will definitely be, be interviewing her at some point. Uh, no, no question. Uh, so, Michael, I, I, so I'm going to take a detour here because I didn't realize that. Tell me a little bit about the founding of the of the community and like was it from its core meant to be like what what always stands out to me about it is just how inclusive and progressive and like welcoming it is was that baked in from the beginning or was it more like hey York starters have nowhere to go and then it's like oh you know what also would be nice
1: <laughs> yeah I mean I wish I could say it was really well thought through from the beginning mm-hmm. um, like it was honestly just a conversation that I had at confab with. Um, actually, some people from Shopify mm. who were like, "Oh, our work is really interesting," but at the time at ConFab, there wasn't a lot of programming around like working with products and writing for products. It was a lot of like web-focused content strategy, um, and so we thought, "Is there a place we can just connect um, to to share ideas?" And so I, I was like, "Well, let me, let me. Why don't I just start a Slack group and I'll invite all of you?" Um, so that was how it started, but then. I had no idea how fast it would grow, um, and as it grew, I I really wanted people to understand like this needs to be an inclusive place. We need to value each other. Um, one of the greatest resources I found early on was the the feminist geek wiki. Um, mm. and they have like a um, what, would, what would, uh, the code of conduct template? That's what they have that you can use. It's like open sourced. Um, that's really good and includes a lot of um, valuable. Um, a valuable thing, so like that that code of conduct is probably the biggest step we took early on. Um, I have to say, like my approach as the the early admin was like to try to um, like let people make it what they needed it to be so um, like jess has had has added a lot more organization and a lot has been a lot more proactive um, since she took it on a couple of years ago um, so i can 't give enough credit to her uh, for for doing that, but um, that 's how it started, and I just felt like. Um, that inclusion aspect was important. I didn't want to lose that. That was something about our field in general. Um, our field is a very inclusive field um, and I really wanted the, the community to be the same way as it grew.
0: Can you say again what code of conduct uh, that was open source? Uh, let, me,
1: let me find a link to it. I believe okay. it's the Feminist Geek Week Wiki.
0: Okay. And then uh, we did have a question. What is the point? It was for text. So what is the point of salary negotiation?
2: Um. What, good. Good question. What is the point of salary negotiation? Yeah, I think there's like the, um, the the yeah. Go ahead. I mean, to ostensibly, the point of salary negotiation is to like you know get a higher salary, right? Like to make make more money to to negotiate in like base salary, but also benefits or stock options or assigning bonus or extra things like that, especially among big tech companies. But, um, because, uh, like so many of these, like, like institutional things, typically, um, typically it's, it's, it's men, it's, it's white men who like do the salary negotiations or understand that it's something that like is, is open for negotiation, right? Like it's like, all of this is open for negotiation. We're very good at advocating for ourselves. Um, And yeah, that's, 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 that's what that is. There's no, there's no just sort of like set salary, at least in like like big U S tech companies. Right. Like if they, yeah, (laughs) so that was a terrible.
0: So I'm going to, I'm going to say something that may be Right. (laughs) And unfortunately, probably is. So, so So, if you think about, let's just start with like, what a salary negotiation is fundamentally. It's a competition. It's an adverse. It, it sets up an adversarial relationship between you and your employer from day one, because they are yeah. trying to pay as little for you as possible, and you're trying to get them to pay as much for you as possible, right? So you're already starting from a point of not being aligned. And I think that's a terrible way to begin a relationship. I... Let me, let me run you through my thought process in the last like 10 seconds. <laughs> I immediately thought to myself, most of the shitty things about capitalism trace back to slavery because our modern notions of capitalism are extremely based on slavery and slavery practices. So I very quickly thought, huh, I wonder if salary negotiation is in any way inherited from slavery. And I was like, that couldn't be, oh wait, slave auctions. A slave auction, is not a set price for what you are going to pay for labor. It is a negotiation for what you are going to pay for labor. (laughs) And I hate to think I'm right, but I swear to God, I'm going to be listening to the 1619 podcast someday, and it's going to be like, yep, that's where they started doing that. (laughs) So
2: You hate to be right, but I think you are.
0: (laughs) So yeah. So I see no social good. (laughs) I'll put it that way. I see no... Uh, inherent social good in in approaching it that way. On the other hand, if you wanna look at an organization um, that has perfect salary transparency, look at the military, Mm. right? If you know your rank, you know exactly how much money you're making. If you know anybody else's rank, you know exactly how much money they're making. There's no negotiating. You don't get to like make a little more than the other general or the other private. No, it's flat. And interestingly okay. enough, I was talking to somebody, a psychologist who used to work in the military, and we were having this equity discussion. She was like, Look, uh, I've been a lot of places. If you are a black woman who wants upward mobility, join the military because it is literally based on your skill set, right? It is not this like negotiation thing, and white men are better at it than you have, and they know more people in the company than you do. It doesn't mean shit. So, not going to say the military is an unproblematic organization, but I will say they've got salary transparency down
1: yeah but um, a government jobs in general like i've applied for eighteen f before and you can see what the salary would be before you join right um that that's a really good thing i hope it gets adopted more broadly
0: so
2: we are but oh, if you are but if you are a um you know a person from just like an underinvested community and you are entering a or got an offer from a big uh, a big tech company um advocate for yourself and negotiate that salary. Yeah. Um, it is, it is there. Like if you, if you have to kind of like play within, play within those rules, uh, play.
0: Yeah. I, I will say like, uh, I didn't negotiate my salary until my, literally my most recent job. I always took what I was given. Cause I was so scared. And my wife like was insistent. She was even saying, look, they are expecting you to come back with a higher offer. Like this is the dance, do it. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I put in my, you know, they, they gave me one number. I came back with another number on a Friday and I had to wait all weekend to find out what they were going to come back with. And that whole weekend, I was like, Oh my God, I lost the job. Oh my God, I lost the job. Oh my God. I lost the job. Oh, they actually met most of it. Yeah. So yeah. if you do have to play the game, do play it <laughs> and play it fairly yeah. aggressively because it's, it's not, but, it, but, it, but it is, if, if you're like me, it's going to be scary as hell. Um, We are almost out of time or technically out of time, but there is one question I meant to ask. So speaking of button, I had the pleasure of being on a panel with these two gentlemen about writing books. And there was a question I never got to ask, which I want to ask them now. So for each of you, what was the most surprising thing about writing a book? What what surprised you the most? And I'll start with with Michael. I think (laughs) there were a lot of surprises, let me tell
1: you. (laughs) <laughs> um, the, the surprise, the, I think one of the most surprising things was how personally I took all the feedback we got. Mm. Um, we involved some technical, uh, reviewers who are wonderful. Like, oh my goodness, they're the best. I'm so grateful that they did that. But the first one I opened was like 200 comments in a Google doc. And I pretty much had a panic attack oh, right no. then. I was like, oh my goodness, this book is terrible. Why am I even doing this? Like, um, I give up. Um, so that was one of the things that really surprised me, like, just, um, how much of it is subjective, right? Like, so as I grew to process that, I realized like, okay, this is valuable feedback. This is important. We don't have to address everything. It's just one lens into how this book could be better. Um, so that was the journey I went on, and I, I guess I knew that about feedback already, but still, it was hard. <laughs> like, like it was very surprising. Like I, I think Andy can tell you, I sent some really desperate text messages during that time.
2: I mean, my my feedback is along the same lines. I I mean, honestly, earlier on in the process, I was just like feeling the feeling the imposter syndrome hard. Like I'm, I'm somebody who over the years like has developed a certain level of confidence in his writing. Um, I feel pretty confident most of the things that I wrote, but like, I think it was, what what was it week one, Michael? We, uh, week one of actually doing the writing. Uh, So we, we, we kind of like took chapters individually and wrote kind of the base of it and then traded chapters to like kind of round it out and add, add to it. But when we were the first week of writing our, our first chapters, um, I was messaging with Michael just saying like, do you feel like everything that's like coming out of your brain onto the paper is just like derivative and worthless? <laughs> and he was just like, yes. So we Same. like, I kind of went, I kind of regressed a little bit. Like I, I felt a lot more like I did when I was much younger writing something I was not comfortable writing. So it, it's it's still like, still sometimes I like look at, the book, or I flip through it, and I'm just like, why, why do people read this? Why, why is this interesting or valuable to people? So yeah, I,
1: I told like, people like, I don't want to read that. Like, I'm glad you do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that that's probably the most surprising thing was sort of like the the amount of. Uh, kind of like regression in the confidence of my writing that I I went through. What what is it for you, Dave? Are you you willing to share? So it's
0: funny. There's So there's, okay, well, the the most surprising thing was just uh, how shitty my memory is because when we got to the (laughs) fact-checking phase of the book where I had to like go back and research and actually find the source material for these studies, I would find out oh, that study never actually existed. I took two different studies and conflated them in my mind. So now I have to find those two studies. <laughs> but like all these things, I was so sure I remembered clearly. And the irony is I knew from my research that human memory is terrible. <laughs> but it's like, this was yeah. my journey of like, no, really you, David Thomas, your memory is terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but just going back Amen. to like the confidence thing, um, it reminds me of probably one of my favorite stories from writing the book. So originally I was slated to write a brief Uh, for um, a book apart. And for them, that's like a 12,000 word, like kind of like ebook. Um, That's like print on demand. I'm like, yay, I'm going to do that for them. And when I was actually writing it though, like the first draft was like 25,000 words. Right. And so I sent that to them thinking, okay, they're going to chop out half of this and then we'll get to the brief. So this is my very first draft. So I sent that to them. And a few days later, I'm in a meeting at the end of the day. And I happen to glance at my phone and I see an alert and it's like, uh, the beginning of an email messages, you know, like you don't see the whole message and it's sort of like from my editor and the first few lines are, so about your book, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then it's like, I couldn't see the rest. I'm in a meeting, so I can't like open Terrifying. up my phone. And I'm like, over. <laughs> <laughs> finally get back to my desk, open it up. and It's like, <laughs> so about your book, dot, dot, dot. It's really great. And it's twenty five thousand words, and we actually don't want to cut much, much of it. So, do you want to actually make it a full, full length book? And I'm like, oh my god! Amazing. And by the way, by the way, later I told it's, it's Lisa Maria. By the way, later I told Lisa Maria that story, and she couldn't stop laughing. And I'm like, okay, that is why you are my favorite editor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love Lisa Maria.
0: Um, so, I want to thank everybody for coming out. Michael, Andy, thank you so much. Great to be yeah. here.
2: Yeah. And um,
0: the book is Writing is Designing. Go get it now Um, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I am your host, David Dolan Thomas, and we will see you next time.